Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, August 12th, we are studying Judges chapter 20, verses 1 through 28. A horrible crime has been committed in Gibeah in the territory of Benjamin, and news of that deed has gone out into the 12 tribes. Now they all assemble and decide how to deal with this sin that has been committed in Israel. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Dustin Beck. Pastor Beck serves at Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Warda, Texas. Pastor Beck, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks for having me, Pastor Apple. As we get started this morning, Pastor Beck, let's talk a little bit of context. We, we really need to know what happened in chapter 19 to understand what's going on today. It's just one long narrative from 19 through the end of the book. So fill us in, give us a recap. What do we need to know going into today? Yeah, yeah, that's a, I guess that's a good place to start. Um, maybe it's a, it's a good idea to even zoom back a little bit further and just to kind of reiterate this theme that we've been hearing throughout the book of Judges, um, that in those days there was no king in Israel, and so everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Um, you see that there is um, this ebb and this flow of um, God's people falling away you know, either uh, as, as a whole or individual uh, tribes, uh, they fall away, they're overthrown by, uh, by aggressors from the outside, they cry out to God to raise up a judge, uh, he does, uh, the people are redeemed, uh, the judge passes away, they forget about God again. But in chapter 19, uh, this is almost sort of the, uh, the last couple of chapters here of Judges is sort of an epilogue. Um, it's sort of just tacked on at the end, um, and it doesn't follow uh, the exact raising up of a judge kind of narrative. Uh, but the idea here is uh, is very similar, uh, that the people are doing what they think is right. They're doing whatever they want. And so you have this story of an unnamed Levite um, who is there uh, with his concubine. Um, that's probably a whole nother topic, right? Um, not quite a wife, but similar to, uh, we probably don't have anything like this today um, in our world or in our society, but he has his concubine. Uh, the concubine, there's some drama behind it. She is unfaithful, um, and then she flees to her house in Bethlehem in, Judea, in Judah. And so um, she flees. Um, the man is interested, in, the Levite is interested in reclaiming her, basically in, uh, it says uh, at the beginning that he is going to go back and he's going to speak kindly to her so that he can bring her back. So he journeys down uh, down to Bethlehem and he is uh, met with the girl's father. It says it calls him his father-in-law, right? And so this is very marriage adjacent might be a way to think about this. His father-in-law is very kind to him. Um, he apparently speaks kindly to the, the lady and, um, you know, receives her back after her unfaithfulness. Uh, so they, they decide they're going to go back. They stay a couple of days and they begin to, to head back to the north. Um, they actually, interesting to note, they decide not to stay in Jerusalem. You'll remember that David has not yet conquered Jerusalem, and so Jerusalem is the city of the Jebusites. It's not an Israelite city, it's, and so they, they go on because they say, we want to stay with our own people, right? They make it all the way up into the, um, the, um, the land of Benjamin, of uh, the tribe of Benjamin, uh, to a town called Gibeah, and uh, they sit there. It's getting evening. It's getting to be late. Um, finally, somebody—this was the custom— if you were traveling, finally somebody comes up to them, invites them into his house. And so they go into the house and it seems like everything's going to be fine. Uh, but then you almost have this callback to, uh, you remember the story of, uh, of the angels that go down to Sodom? Uh, you have this, this callback to that when uh, some, some villains, some, some evil men of the town of Gibeah, they circle the house that these, uh, this Levite and his concubine are staying in, uh, and they say, you know, send out the man because, you know, we want to lie with him. 
in a biblical sense, right? And um, and so the the older man that's hosting them says, "I've got my virgin daughter here. Um, I'll send her out. Um, we can even send out the the Levite's concubine." I mean, Pastor Apple, this is a strange story, right? Mm-hmm. What winds up happening is they send out um, uh, the Levite's concubine, um, and she is um, mis uh, she is mistreated and abused uh, sexually um, all through the night, and um, then and the next morning when he opens the door finally. This is such a strange story. She, uh, he opens the door, and she is there unconscious uh, with her hands on the threshold of the door. He picks her up, uh, puts her over the back of his donkey, and goes about on his way. When he gets to where he's going, uh, she has passed away. Um, and so then he does, like we were talking before uh, we began recording today, probably one of the strangest things uh, that takes place in the Bible. Um, he cuts her up into 12 pieces, uh, her body, her remains, um, and he has them sent out by messenger to each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And that is meant to be an invitation to get together and talk about this terrible thing that has been, uh, this atrocity that has been committed against his concubine. And that's where our our passage begins today, with the people of Israel coming out from north to south, um, all of them coming out, and then gathering together. Let's talk about this package that we just got. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. This, I mean, you're right. This is this is a weird text. Oh, it's strange. It's, it's very strange what happens here. And I, I think the connection to the rest of the book of Judges is a helpful thing to keep in mind. As you said, this really does form an epilogue here. Chapters 19 through 21 go together. Chapters 17 through 18 go together. All of that together really stands distinct from what we saw the traditional judge when we think of the book, right? Samson, Gideon, those guys, we think of them, this is different. And and as I've gone through a couple of these very strange chapters of scripture now, I've got a couple of thoughts as to maybe how they stand together. You you, you brought out that these chapters really hit home, that everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. There's no king in the land of Israel. In that first part of the book of Judges, you get this phrase, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so I want to tie those two things together, that to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord in the first part of the book is equated with doing whatever is right in your own eyes in this part of the book. And also then that in this part of the book, you get more of a picture of that day-to-day life in Israel. The first part of the book really focuses on the deeds of those judges, their mighty acts. I think Samson. And all of the, I mean, you, you remember what Samson did. You don't hear a lot about other people in Israel at the time. These last chapters give a picture of what life was like in Israel at the time. And to put it mildly, I think I've been saying it's ugly or it's not pretty. <laughs> yeah. and, and this text is a prime example of that. Some of the, some of the most, well, it's memorable, but for a really bad reason. It's just, it's awful to see the way that this happens. And so and that's, that's kind of where we are. Any more introductory material before we jump in and see how the narrative continues? Well, I mean, I think that it's helpful for our listeners to remember uh, that, you know, that that idea of there being no king in Israel is a false premise, right? I mean, the whole way through, we kind of get this idea of, well, who's in charge here? Who's in charge? You know, these judges are supposed to be the ones that are that are raised up and they've got some authority from the Lord. Uh, but really and truly, God is Israel's king. They were established to be his people, his prized possession, uh, for whom he would fight, um, for whom he would would care. And that's that's the real uh, the the sad note of the book of Judges um, is to look at it and to see that it was a uh, it was always deep down a faith problem that their their trust wasn't in God as their king. And so when we read through this, we can just see, um, and especially in the passage that we're going to be studying today, uh, we're going to see how Israel um, still doesn't quite call on God the way that they should. Uh, so we'll get into that in just a few moments. But yeah, uh, I like what you said there about this is um, this is um, less of a nation problem with a singular kind of savior or judge. This is more of an individual daily life kind of problem uh, to show that it's not just um, it's not just you know all of Israel uh, being enslaved by Philistines or things like that, uh, but that this is this is a deep seated issue with these people. So yeah, yeah, let's get to the text. 
All right, Judges chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, Tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot, and we will take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand, to bring provisions for the people, that when they come they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. All right, we'll pause there, Pastor Beck. So just set the scene, some kind of nuts and bolts stuff here. You know, Israel comes out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead. They go to Mizpah. Just give us some geography, basic introductory information on this text so we can get the picture in our minds. Right, just so we got kind of a, a clear picture in front of us. Um, so we're going to have uh, Dan is all the way in the north of uh, the the conquered lands of Israel. Uh, Beersheba is all the way in the south. Um, and then when we're going to talk about Gilead, we're talking about the east side of the Jordan River. Okay, so we've got um, from from north to south and from east to west, uh, we've got all of the people of of Israel assembling. Uh, but you get the impression also Benjamin is. They did not answer the call. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, they did not show up. Uh, we're gonna. I mean, as we as we find out here uh, in the next couple of verses after what you just read, um, that Benjamin is gonna. They're gonna kind of stick to their own. Uh, they're gonna support their own people. They're gonna be on their own side in what what is going to eventually be a civil war. Right. right, a war between the tribes. So they're going to gather together at Mizpah, um, and Mizpah, if you look at it on a map, um, is basically right on the border between Judah and Benjamin. Okay, so they're kind of on Benjamin's front doorstep here, and this is the place that they're going to gather together. And apparently, Mizpah is a place where they, uh, where Israel will gather from time to time for different, um, almost conferences like this. They're going to get together um, to discuss uh, the nature of what's going on. Um, with the intent, it appears, that they are going to do battle. They are going to go in and they are going to um, make it right. Mm-hmm. So there, there's 400,000 men on foot that drew this. So this is a pretty intense army that has gathered. 400,000 oh, yeah. is is not a small number of, of Israelites. It's just, that's a, I think it's, I appreciate seeing that number because sometimes you forget just how big the people of Israel are at this point. And right. well, 400,000 soldiers are coming together here to deal with this problem. They, they go to Mizpah. There's this, this conference of sorts. The chiefs, I assume, are, are dealing with the matter. So when it, you know, they're going to unite as one in this, but the chiefs are going to be dealing with this. And the Levite is the one who presents his case. He's the one who sent word out through that very strange invitation back in chapter 19 that everyone would gather together. And now he's going to tell them what happened. You know, what, what did it mean that you sent me this, this package, Mr. Levite? And so he's going to tell his side of the story. Pastor Beck, what do, you, what do you make of the way that the Levite tells his account to the people of Israel? Well, I mean, he, he lays it out for them and he says, you know, this is, uh, this is what happened. Uh, he gives kind of um, uh, a recounting of chapter 19. He leaves out uh, kind of the section about, uh, you know, why on earth they were down there anyways, about her unfaithfulness and his going to uh, to retrieve her and everything else. Um, he assigns uh, their motive there that they, they meant to kill him, right? Um, but, uh, I mean, he, he basically lays it out here, and the case is already made. 
you know, um, he makes the point and he says they've committed this abomination, this outrage in Israel. Um, and then he asks them for their advice and counsel. Um, and when he asks for their advice and counsel, I find it interesting uh, that this is one of those uh, this is one of those places where it might be best to ask God's input. But remember, this is the days when the people thought there wasn't a king, and so the people did what was right in their own eyes, right? Uh, over and over again in these uh, these first verses here, uh, we hear that the people of Israel came out um, as one man, right? All of Israel is gathered together as one man, and they speak as one man, um, and then they're going to gather against the city, united as one man. Uh, these guys are gathered together um, to to do uh, combat, to do um, to to bring about justice in their eyes, um, but they haven't inquired of the Lord at this point. They've done what they thought was right. They've done what they thought was best, um, and this is. You know, this is, it's going to be a problem as the text rolls along. Uh, it's going to turn out to be uh, one of those things where uh, maybe it's best to ask God. Maybe it's best to to speak with the Lord, who is your king, uh, before you make your case, right? Mm-hmm. It's particularly ironic that a Levite does not think to inquire of the Lord right. at this point. Yeah. If, if anybody was around that should have known to inquire of the Lord, it should have been a Levite one whose job it was to take care of the things of God, the tabernacle at this point. And if anybody should have known to inquire, it should have been a Levite. One, just another one of those signs of how much decay there really is in Israel at this point. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, that we, we would like to see, you know, a Levite kind of come from the right, uh, come from the right mindset on uh, things like that. But I, I mean, I, I get the impression here that there's, a lot of the world has gotten into uh, Israel at this point. Uh, you know, um, the idea was that uh, Israel would be kind of a city on a hill, that Israel would be uh, God's chosen possession, and that um, they would uh, they would be this beacon uh, to the rest of the world. And instead, what we kind of have is that the rest of the world um, kind of seeps in uh, to God's people so that they uh, they don't necessarily go to God first. They don't necessarily ask uh, um, God's opinion on things. And instead they just say, Hey, we can figure this out. And you know, if things get really, really bad, then maybe we can ask God for his opinion about it. Right. Yeah. They've got things backwards here. They're just going with whatever seems right in their own eyes. And we've, we've seen this in the judges themselves previously, and it's become quite apparent in the overall Israelite society as well. One thing that I would, I would add to what you were saying earlier, Pastor Beck, about the Levites account is that I think he he leaves out his own role. You know, he, he yeah, that he's the one he, that sent her out of the house, right? Yeah, <laughs> he he conveniently skips that part of the account, right? Which you know, how that might have changed the way Israel reacts as a whole, I'm not sure, and certainly does not change the the awful crime that was committed against his concubine, right? But there's no ownership on his own part. Again, just just another another sign of how far Israel is from following after the ways of God at this point, that any sort of confession on his part, any sort of, of sacrifice on his part. I mean, you think about this point was made yesterday that when, when his concubine is, is dead, rather than offering any sort of sacrifice for his own sin, he, he turns that knife that would have been used for sacrifice and he he cuts up the concubine. So, I mean, everything is just, just messed up here. (laughs) And I I read in one place, um, you know, uh, somebody was talking about chapter 19 and they said that, you know, his, his willingness ultimately to, to send her out of the house, you know, it may have even been, you know, indicative of the fact that he hadn't actually forgiven her for her unfaithfulness mm-hmm. at the beginning of chapter 19. You know, he just said, well, I mean, if that's, if that's what's going to appease the crowd, um, I'm, you know, might as well kind of a deal to save my own skin. So you, you're right. He's, he's not acting uh, in the most, uh, the most righteous manner here. Um, and then the other thing uh, that, that jumped off the page at me, you were talking earlier about this 400,000, uh, you know, 400,000 man uh, troop, uh, when we look at that, you know, you can almost kind of contrast that with back in chapter seven with Gideon, mm. right? Um, generally speaking, 
In the Old Testament, when an army is amassed, the size of the army is not going to be what guarantees victory, Hmm. right? Um, It's whether or not the Lord is on their side. Uh, because um, you know Gideon is is able to uh, to defeat his enemies with three hundred men. It's three hundred, right? Yeah, I think that's yes, right. You're correct. Yeah, um, and and here we've got this true this army of four hundred thousand people, right? Men were drawing swords and everything like that. They sound very intimidating, um, but they're doing it uh, not according to God's plan, not according to God's will. Um, they haven't even inquired of the Lord at this point. And instead, they're just going to say, uh, by our own might, by our own numbers, uh, we're going to go and we're going to avenge uh, this lady's blood, right? Mm. That was a theme that showed up back in chapter 18. Chapter 17 and 18 really far- form the first sure, part yeah. of this epilogue. And in chapter 18, you get the Danites who are busy oh, conquering right. their territory. And uh, we talked about in that episode that they are operating on this principle of might makes right. It seems right. that whatever, whatever they can do, they'll just go ahead and do. And, and that number 400,000, I think that's a good connection to make that. It seems that same mindset continues in the land of Israel at this time as well, that, well, we've got 400,000 men and Benjamin is just one tribe. Let's go, let's go get them is, is almost the, the attitude that seems prevalent here in this. And again, all of this is being done without inquiring of the Lord, without consulting his word, without consulting the high priest, without consulting anybody. It's just what what seems good to us, let's go with that. And, and there are going to be times here, and there already are times, where I think they get close to what seems good. I mean, obviously, this is a horrible sin that's been committed, and something needs to be done about it. But the fact that they just don't even seem to think, let's ask the Lord, until much later in this text, just speaks to how far they are from him as their true king. Right. Yeah. Right. It's just a, it's a broken situation for sure. Um, and it's, it's one of those things, uh, I, was, I was thinking about this as I was, I was reading through chapters 19, 20, 21, a couple of times, and I um, kind of the image that I got in my mind is, um, have you ever uh, seen, you know, a bad car accident or something like that? And somehow, sometimes it just kind of happens in slow motion, right? At least right. that's the way we describe it. It's just you can see all of the events unfolding. You can see just how, you know, just how terrible it is, excruciating. Just as you, right as you go through the process. Oh goodness, it's so hard to watch. Uh, well, that's what happens in these verses as they unfold. As you can just see, um, God's people, uh, these these twelve brothers, these twelve tribes. You can just see them tearing each other apart here. Um, and you know, it's, it's hard to watch, frankly. Mm -hmm. It is, it is. Let's read a little bit farther here before the break. We're in verse 12 now. So the, the men of Israel have gathered together as one man. They're united in this effort against the crime that's been committed in Benjamin. And as you said, Pastor Beck, Benjamin's not there at this point. Now Israel's going to go and address this matter to Benjamin. So we're picking up in verse 12 of chapter 20. And the tribes of Israel sent men throughout all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. I think I'll just pause there because we're coming up to our break here. Sure. So on the one hand, you've got all the tribes of Israel gathered together as one. They're united in this effort to bring justice to a situation where injustice has been done. And, and this is one of those moments where, at least for the people of Israel, they've not inquired of the Lord, it is true, but what they're proposing seems at least pretty close to what you think the Lord would would tell them to do, given what we know from his word. What's what's right. happening here, Pastor Beck? Well, you have the people uh, of Israel, um, and again, it seems like they're they're righteously angry. Um, they're in they're in a good place as far as this goes. This is what should be done is the the murderer should be brought out. But we see uh, that classic trope that takes place whenever somebody is caught in a sin, um, they try to they try to conceal it. They try to cover it up. They try to deny it. Um, they try to fight back against it, right? I mean, that's um, our experience oftentimes as Christians, um, is anytime that we take a strong stand against sin, against sin which God himself has 
taken a pretty strong stance against. He's against sin, right? Um, people hate us for it. People want nothing to do with it. Uh, people push back against it. They say, you know, who are you to judge me? And I think that's what we see from the Benjaminites uh, is just this idea of, you know, why do you think that you're better than us? Why do you, you know, and, and there's almost this kind of this group pride that comes into it that says, you know, th- those are our kinsmen, right? Never mind the fact that the the rest of Israel is also their kinsmen. No, we're going to protect our brothers. We're going to protect our people. Um, you know, forget about what you think. Uh, and so there's this kind of obstinance that is unwilling uh, to to actually repent, to actually um, try to make uh, try to make things right. Yeah, I, I, I want to come back to that thought about the division that comes about here between Benjamin and Israel on the other side of the break, which we do need to take. So you're listening to Sharp Iron here on KFU. We're going to take that short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, August 12th, and we are studying Judges chapter 20, verses 1 through 28. We've got Pastor Dustin Beck with us. He serves at Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Warda, Texas. Pastor Beck, prior to the break, we were talking about this division that has occurred now between 11 tribes of Israel and Benjamin. And the people of Benjamin says they will not listen to the voice of their brothers to the people of Israel. Instead, they choose to side with these men of Gibeah who have committed this horrible crime. And and as I was reflecting on this, it it reminds me to a degree of, of some of the things that Jesus says when he talks about those who love their father or their mother or their son or their daughter, any number of relations, more than they love him, he says that they are not worthy to follow him. And it seems that, that Benjamin is is going along that path for themselves, that they have chosen to ally themselves with those who have fallen into grave sin who are related to them, rather than sticking with the Lord as their king and his church. What do you think? No, I, I completely, absolutely agree with you. Uh, and and one of the things that happens a lot of times when we're, uh, especially when we're studying the Old Testament, um, is we get into this idea that the bloodline is everything, right? Mm-hmm. That it's, you know, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to the 12 tribes, etc. You know, it's all about who your parents were. And, you know, reading the New Testament, it really points out the fact um, that it was never actually about the bloodline. It was never actually about who your parents were. It was about the faith that they handed down to you, right? Um, And so that's why uh, in Romans, for instance, Paul can say that not all Israel is Israel, right? Um, it's it's the faith of Abraham that justifies. Um, it's not actually saying we have Abraham as our father, right? So that's, uh, you're, you're absolutely on track here. You're absolutely in the right place uh, when you say that um, Benjamin as a tribe uh, has chosen their blood relatives. And not that's not to say that Israel wasn't their blood relatives, right? But they've chosen their, their closest kin rather than, um, than their slightly less kin, their their cousins from from various other tribes of the same family. Um, but those are the ones uh, who are saying, you know, it's not about our blood, it's about what God would want. It's about God's righteousness. It's about um, about justice being served. And so they want nothing to do with that justice, but instead they say, listen, you know, even though it's wrong, we're going to stick with uh, stick with our family uh, rather than do what's right. And I, th- I think we find this a lot today, don't we? Mm, I, yeah. I think so. I think so. Do you have anything in mind? Ha! Uh, you know, a couple of things. Um, I mean, the people that will make excuses uh, for folks who are doing things that are outside of God's will. Uh, that's, that's uh, you know, that's pretty generic. Uh, but I mean, it happens, you know, you and I are both pastors. We, uh, we get those phone calls um, that say, you know, my, uh, my, my child or my grandchild or niece or nephew or whoever um, is interested in getting married. 
um, and you find out they're getting married to a, a non-Christian, right? Um, now, I mean, that's not to say you can't marry a non-Christian. I mean, Paul seems to be kind of against it in God's word, but that's another topic for another day. You know, but you you find out that there's a sinful situation going on, um, and you are asked to um, either look the other way on behalf of this family, or you're asked to, uh, you know, to justify their sin, to say, ah, it's the 21st century, these things don't really matter anymore, things like that. Um, and it's, you know, it's our calling as pastors uh, to kind of hold the line, uh, to say, no, this is, uh, this is important to God, um, and so it's important to us. Uh, and is that comfortable or is that easy uh, for those, uh, those parents or those family members to hear? Um, I, I don't think that it is. Right. And yet we still speak the word and yet we still encourage them towards faithfulness to that word. Um, and if that makes Thanksgiving and Christmas a little bit more awkward, um, that's something that they just, um, well, hopefully uh, the folks will uh, will will understand and will come to repentance and we can walk through that situation. Uh, was that kind of what what you had in mind or were you thinking of other things, too? <laughs> well, you know, and I think, I mean, the, the fact that it is often family situations. Yeah. Is, a big part of it, and you see it here. One one thought that comes to my mind is you talk about Thanksgiving and Christmas. Sure, my, my Methodist relatives are in town, pastor, and they'd like to take communion. <laughs> right? Why can't they? And and the pastor speaks faithfully from God's word what it means to go to the sacrament and to believe what is there given the very body and blood of Christ and to receive that in true unity with the gathered congregation. And but pastor, they're they're my family. And and to you know the the question becomes who, where does your loyalty lie? Does your right. loyalty lie with the Lord and His Word first, or does it lie with your family first? And and it seems here that that Benjamin is choosing family first over the Lord's Word. Now to just to keep our, our bearings in this whole text, nobody really has inquired of the Lord's Word. At the, <laughs> right, they do seem pretty close to it, and, and we're going to give them that. But just to, to keep our bearings in the text. But I, that was one of the, the thoughts that, that had come to my mind, just as another example of in, in modern day application where Christians today might be tempted to think of their family over faithfulness to the Lord and his word. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's one of those one more time uh, where we, we fall out of step with God's word and we, we think that, you know, the things that we see, the things that we experience um, are what matter most, right? And nobody likes to disappoint family. Most people don't like to dis disappoint family, I should say that. <laughs> most folks don't look forward to disappointing family, but sometimes, uh, you know, if it comes down to uh, faithfulness to the Lord um, or, you know, upsetting, you know, an upsetting family or appeasing family, um, there's got to be that, that difficult conversation. And, you know, it's one of those situations where you can say, um, I hope that you can forgive me for this, uh, but you know, here's uh, here's the way that we understand the Holy Supper. Here's the way that we understand, um, you know, marriage. This, that, or the other thing. I mean, it's 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 not easy being a Christian. It's not easy um, allowing the Lord's will uh, to have its its sway. Um, but that's what we're called to. That's that's part and parcel of being a Christian. Um, mm -hmm. to say, Thy will be done, not mine. Right, right. Jesus calls us to carry a cross and, and follow him. And, right. and sometimes that cross is rejection from our own family members, but we know who we're following. And, and that's what, I mean, that's what makes the difference for us today. That doesn't happen in this text from Judges chapter <laughs> no, 20. No, it doesn't. <laughs> so they've, they've picked sides. You've got 11 tribes versus one. Benjamin has decided to go together with those who have committed this wrong in Gibeah. They're going to stick with them, and they're coming together to battle. And so the, the text continues with a few more numbers here for us, Pastor Beck. We're in verse 15 now. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Every one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. Now, there, we'll, we'll stop there because that's those, that kind of goes together with the numbers. Sure. We've already heard a little bit about the 400,000 men. Now we're going to find out, well, what's the opposite side? Benjamin. It's clearly much, much smaller, but, but there's some information there about some left-handed folks, Pastor Beck, that I think might be particularly appealing to you. Why is that? From what I understand, you're left-handed. Yeah, I do write with my correct hand. That's 
That is, that and, is and you're pretty perfect. handy with a, a slingshot, from what I know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> ever since we moved out here to the country, uh, the boys and I have been shooting BB guns and bows and arrows. And um, we actually, uh, with our scouting group, we uh, got a chance a week or so ago to uh, learn to throw tomahawks and throwing knives. Um, and I said, man, there's one discipline that is left out of all of those uh, fun, like, you know, young teenager boy games and, and sports and things. I said, I need a slingshot. So I went out and got a slingshot. I've been practicing in the backyard. Um, I can tune back in next time and, and let you know how the slingshot's coming along. But <laughs> it's not as easy as it looks. No, and yes, I'm left-handed, but I actually shoot a slingshot right-handed. So that I guess I'm not one of the chosen. <laughs> well, Benjamin no. is Benjamin is the son of my right hand, which uh, which we noted back with Ehud. Yeah, 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 if you yeah, recall yeah. back in Judges chapter three, uh-huh. Ehud was left-handed from Benjamin, the tribe, yeah. which means the son of my right hand. Yet you've got all these left-handed people here who are, are very good with the sling. Tell tell us a little bit about Benjamin's army. Yeah. So um, so first of all, um, when we see the twenty six thousand seven hundred uh, men versus the four hundred thousand men, um, we are immediately kind of supposed to say, oh, well, they don't stand a chance, right? There's no way these guys are going to stand up to that. Um, but, you know, we're going to see that that's maybe not quite the case for a couple of days. Uh, we're going to hear about, you know, we hear in 16 about these 700 chosen men that are left-handed. What's the big deal with being left-handed? Um, well, if you've ever done any kind of, um, how about pitching and baseball, right? Baseball season started recently, I'm told. Is that correct? That's, I believe that's correct. I think yes. that's true. Yeah. The bat swinging and things. Um, if you are a, uh, a, a pitcher, right, um, you want to, is, I, I always get it confused. Is it, do you want to be a left-handed pitcher against a right-handed hitter or is that vice versa? Generally, and I could be wrong. It's been a you're while the since expert. I've studied this, and well, I'm not an expert, but I, generally, it tends to if you're a if you're a left-handed batter, that's an advantage to seeing the ball come out of a right-handed pitcher, and and vice versa. So, and I think this is where you're going with this. <laughs> yeah, this is it. the The majority of people are right-handed, right? So, if you're able to either throw left-handed or bat left-handed, then you're going to have that advantage on a majority of the pitchers or batters that you'll face. Well, and there's also just, there's the about. familiarity of it because right. there's so many more right-handed batters that every pitcher has practiced against more right-handed batters. And the same thing for a pitcher um, is that most pitchers are right-handed. And so, you know, if you're a batter, you expect you see the same delivery a thousand times, right? Over and over and over again. But when somebody comes left-handed, they're coming, you know, at, even as a lefty myself, you know, I remember the first time that I um, I went and played uh, disc golf, frisbee golf, you know, uh, with a friend of mine who was also left-handed, and I saw him throw it, and I just said, "It looks weird when you do it." He said, "What do you mean?" He said, "I've just never seen a left-handed person throw a frisbee before." You know, um, so the same idea applies to sword fighting, I guess. I haven't taken up swords yet, but I assume that that's I assume that that's the same thing is if you've only ever faced right handed opponents with a sword, when somebody comes and swings at you from their left, your right, um, all of a sudden, everything is different all of a sudden. um, And granted, they've probably also only practiced against right handed people. And so they have a clear advantage because you're you don't know what to expect as well. So this is setting up for, our, like I said, the first two days of battle um, in which Benjamin's actually going to do pretty well uh, fighting. Uh, but so we have this uh, this kind of embellishment here, these left-handed men, which we already know means that they're going to be, they're going to have a little bit of an advantage. Um, and then everyone who can sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Um, I'm going to have to practice that a bit uh, before I before I get there. Uh, but uh, so we have this again, this enumeration um, of the size of the forces. This is kind of um, it's setting up the board so that we can see, uh, you know, like they used to strategize uh, with all of the little models and everything. OK, we see that this force is outmatched, but they they're not empty handed. They got a couple of tricks up their sleeve kind of a deal. Uh, we're just going to have to see what comes next, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the next time you're with us, Pastor Beck, let us know how these these new trades of yours are going. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. As long yeah. as the text has something to do with slingshots That's right. and things like that. That's yeah, right. That's what we'll that's do. That's right. <laughs> Let's go ahead then. The, the rest of the text then is going to take us into the battle then that's going to take place. There's going to be two that we get. And, and unfortunately, you don't get to see how it ends, Pastor Beck. <laughs> right. You'll have to tune in tomorrow. It's just yeah. a very long chapter. Right. So <laughs> uh, we're picking up here again in verse 18. 
the people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Then the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin, and the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. The people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until the evening. And they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them. So the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went against them out of Gibeah the the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. That's where our text ends today. <laughs> Tune this in is, next time to see that's what right. happens. <laughs> that's right. You got you to find out tomorrow. Although although the Lord has spoken here, and right. so we should have an idea of what's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, but one thing that does stand out from this section, Pastor Beck, is that finally now the people do start to inquire of God. That's what's been missing, we've been saying so far. Here they start to ask him. So what do we see? Well, I mean, it's this is, again, this is just such a crazy chapter because, I mean, they finally, you know, before they actually march into battle, right? Verse 18, which you just read, um, they go up and it says they inquired of God, right? Now, it seems... Uh, they've already made an assumption that they should go up. They've already kind of, uh, they've already decided that, you know, that's that's not up for grabs. But who should go up first, right? Um, who gets to be in charge uh, here? Who should be the ones to lead the battle? Um, and so this was either decided uh, likely uh, by lot, you know, by casting lots kind of a deal, or by uh, Urim or Thummim, right, uh, which the priest would have been wearing. Uh, we're going to hear a little bit more about the priest in just a little bit. But so they go to the tabernacle, um, and then Judah uh, steps up, and and Judah is always going to have kind of a place of prominence um, among the uh, the twelve tribes. Of course, Judah is eventually going to be the tribe from which David and Jesus come, um, and so we can we can kind of see that as, um, as as you know almost sort of prophecy typology kind of a deal. Uh, but so they uh, they go up, and and the thing that's crazy to me um, is they go up and they ask God who goes first, Judah goes first, um, and then they get their rear ends handed to them, right? They go up and they draw the battle line and they they set out to, to do what needs to be done, and they lose 22,000 men, right? Out of four, uh, 400,000, that's pretty significant losses when your opponents only have 26,700 men, right? They killed a ton of you guys. You guys did not succeed. Um, so they go and they weep before the Lord until evening, and then they inquire again of the Lord. You know, shall we draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And th- this is the part that seems so strange to me, is that the Lord says, go up against them, right? And then again, they have just about as bad of a day. 18,000 men die uh, of the people of Israel, right? Um, this is almost just, I mean, excuse my um, my irreverence here, but this almost feels like Mother May I. Mm-hmm. Did you ever play that game? I did. Right? Yeah. Um, it almost feels like Mother May I. Like, well, you didn't ask the right question. Or, or Simon Says, right? Um, you didn't, you know, I didn't say Simon Says. And so it, you know, 20, 40,000 people die. Um, and it's it's because they're, they ask the Lord, Judah goes up first. They ask the Lord, go up against them. Right. But the thing that changes the difference there is in verse 26, when Israel goes up, the whole army, they wept and they came to Bethel. Right. They sat before the Lord. They fasted that day until evening. They offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Worship takes place. Pastor Apple. Worship is the difference is now all of a sudden they're not trying to use God like a um, I mean, can I say a magic eight ball? (laughs) <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, should we go and fight? Magic 8-Ball says, you know, seems likely or whatever, 
Uh, all signs point towards yes. Um, that's that's not the way that God works. And I think that that's what they're trying to get out of God. Maybe that's maybe that's something that's instructive for us um, uh, today is that how often do we kind of relegate prayer to kind of a, um, I mean, I don't know if we're allowed to say quid pro quo in the, with the news and everything. That's that's several months ago, so we can say that by now. But we try to make it just kind of like a, hey, God, here's the deal. Um, I'm going to do this, and I would like for you to do that, right? Or we we try to, to bend God to our will. Um, and I think that's what happens the first two times is they say, hey, we really want to do this. Um, so, God, uh, what do we need to do for you to um, to bless it? How, how do we make this work? How do we get out of it what we want out of it? Um, and in the third instance, I think you don't see that quite as much. I think there is, um, at least if you read the text, it seems like there is some actual repentance. It seems like there is um, some actual, um, let's stop. Let's go back to the way that God has instructed us to enter into his presence. Um, these peace offerings and burnt offerings, et cetera, these are things that are supposed to be done. Right. Um, and then we'll see what we'll see what God has to say. And it's it specifically brings in that third time uh, that they're going to uh, inquire before the covenant uh, the Ark of the Covenant, um, that Phineas, the grandson of Aaron, is going to be the one who ministers. Um, and then they get their answer um, that's ultimately going to be. Um, well, it's actually going to be the Lord's word. I will give them into your hand. I, I think I think you've you've got a progression here that that yeah. is I think you're I think you're right and and one of the ways that I Thank I you. was trying to see it too is you're welcome in verse eighteen it the text says that they inquired of of God now it does say oh, that the yeah. Lord Yahweh answers but but the right. people go and they inquire of God the second time in verse twenty three it does say they inquired of the Lord. So I mean, it seems they're they're maybe drawing closer to to yeah. a true worship, and then it is that third time, as you pointed out, where now we've got a specific mention of the Ark of the Covenant. We've got specific mention of the high priest, who's the the minister. That they've they've actually it it seems, and maybe this is I don't want to read too much into it, but but it seems that they've actually gone back to the Word, and and they're trying to enter into God's presence the way that He's given them to do so, where they've been ignoring it you know, that whole first part of the text where they don't even bother to inquire of God. They go to trying to inquire of God, almost like the, the magic eight ball, you know, or, or a, yeah. a slot machine sort of view of God to finally coming back to what he's actually given them in the way that they are to approach him through the priest, through the sacrifices in true humiliation and true repentance rather than on any merits of their own. And so I do think, I mean, that's, that's the way that, that I'm understanding the text as well. And I think that they realize, you know, after these two days of just humiliating loss, they've lost 10% of their army in two days, right? That, that's not a sustainable type thing. And so when they come to the Lord this third time, uh, it almost gives you the impression uh, that these guys realize um, that without God, they're not going to be able to accomplish um, the purpose that is a godly purpose, right? Um, to uh, uh, to punish the evil, you know, the wicked um, evildoers uh, there in Gibeah. That is that is a God-pleasing purpose, that those people who will not repent, but instead are going to draw up arms against you, that they should be punished for their crimes, right? Um, but without the Lord's blessing, without the Lord fighting for them, um, you know, I mean, 400,000 people, get a million, get five million. You're still not going to be able to stand up uh, because the same thing is always true for Israel. And it's always true for the church today is that God is the one who fights for us, right? Apart from his will, apart from his might, um, we don't stand a chance against anything, right? And so we would do well to remember that uh, in our day as well. Hmm. Pastor Beck, we've got about three and a half minutes here on the morning. Any any points from this text that we haven't talked about that you need to bring out for us or you know, help us to to tie this text together, use it to to point us toward Christ, because we know that all Scripture does that. So, right. so help us with, with those tasks. Right, yeah. So, I mean, this is, uh, as you mentioned before, this text is kind of a, it's, it kind of dangles out there with what's going to happen tomorrow, tune in, right? Uh, but, I mean, the, the short answer is that God is faithful, that God um, overcomes uh, the wicked, that God stands by the righteous, and that God uh, will ultimately, His will will be done. Right. Of which we say, you know, praise the Lord. 
But I find it interesting uh, that you've got uh, this this uh, this splitting apart of God's people, right? Which of course is never His will, um, and yet you've got those who have uh, pursued a lie. You've got people that want nothing to do with the truth, um, and then uh, you're going to find that even though all of Benjamin is ultimately going to be decimated, left basically as a stubble, um, you're going to find that God is still gracious to His people. And so eventually, you know, in, you know, a book or two, once we get to first Samuel, the first king, the first human king of Israel is going to be from the tribe of Benjamin, right? And so even though there's discord between brothers, even though there's this, this, uh, this disharmony and this disunion, you're going to see that the people of God will be brought back together. Now, of course, Saul, uh, the Benjaminite is not going to be a great king. Right. Um, there is another who is going to be uh, uh, with uh, the, the apple of God's eye and with a heart, um, a man after God's own heart. And that's David. Right. And so you're ultimately going to see uh, that God is going to bring his people, uh, regardless of clan or, or tribe. He's going to bring his people together under David. And David, of course, is uh, he's a, a prefigure of Christ. He comes as the one um, who unifies, as the one who speaks peace. And David, of course, um, has his own share of sins, his own share of problems, his own share of of uh, of, of murder and adultery and, and lying and deceiving and everything else. Um, but David is that example of the one who repents, the one who pleads for God's forgiveness. Um, and God ultimately grants that to David uh, and to us in Jesus Christ. So that's that's the trajectory of all of this, is that there is a king in Israel, and it's not David, and it's not Saul, um, and it's not any of these Benjaminites, but it's the Lord himself who comes down in the person and the work and the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, um, and he rules and reigns even now. So we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, to rescue us from the this world of sin and death. Pastor Dustin Beck is the pastor at Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Warda, Texas, helping us this morning with Judges chapter 20, verses 1 through 28. Pastor Beck, thanks for being our guest today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.